Welcome to the Weight Solutions for Physicians podcast, the podcast that will help you find solutions for your weight concerns that will last a lifetime. Together, for you. Welcome to episode 58 of the Weight Solutions for Physicians podcast. I'm your host, Siobhan Key. Thank you so much for joining me this week. In case you are just joining me, I am a family physician and an obesity medicine physician, and I am a weight loss coach for physicians with an expertise in helping people end the struggles with emotional eating and binge eating. In this podcast, I bring both my obesity medicine knowledge as well as my uh, life coach training through the Life Coach School and those tools, and then also my personal experience and knowledge of having lost 55 pounds and maintaining it now for uh, getting close to two years. If you are just joining us, make sure you go back and you check out all the other episodes because there's a ton of information. This is episode 58. There's a whole lot of other episodes with a lot of information that can really help you make a difference in your uh, weight and your emotional eating and everything else. Today, we are going to be talking about fasting. I have Megan Ramos with me. Megan is the co-founder of The Fasting Method, along with uh, Dr. Jason Fung. And she brings a large breadth of knowledge about the use of uh, intermittent fasting and fasting as tools for managing metabolic disorders as well as obesity. Now, fasting and intermittent fasting is everywhere on the internet. And there's all sorts of opinions that people have about the best way to do it, the only way to do it, et cetera, et cetera. Um, And so I think a lot of people end up with questions about fasting. It also can generate a lot of questions if you're newer into the idea of lower carb eating and this type of approach to eating, because it so goes against what we're all taught through our childhood and early adult years that in order to lose weight, we need to be eating regularly to avoid going into the open quote, starvation mode, close quote. And so I think it's really important to have good quality discussions about this. Personally, I use intermittent fasting with uh, both my coaching clients and with uh, my obesity medicine patients. Uh, But there are a couple situations that I do recommend caution or not diving into. You know, with fasting, when our brains really want to be black and white and want to be very restrictive when we want to lose weight. So what our brains often do when we start to think about losing weight, our brain goes, okay, if I'm going to do this, I'm going to do it the absolute best way. And so I'm going to go low carb and start fasting and start doing this. And it needs to be this, all of this right now for it to work. And that would be the one caution I would say is I think fasting is a really good tool. I think it can be really powerful and works really well for some people. But it's, I don't really think it's necessarily the right tool to start with, especially when you deal with things like binge eating or significant emotional eating. Because if you haven't done all the other work and all the other stuff that we talk about, and you just start fasting, so you stop eating and extend your time where you're not eating, all the thought patterns that you haven't worked on can really trip you up and you can end up overeating when you break your fast or breaking your fast earlier than what you planned and overeating and with a lot of feelings of deprivation and stuff. So like I said, I think fasting is a really good tool. And that's why I've got Megan on the show today. But I do caution you watch your brain. And if your brain is just like, okay, we got to do the fasting because it is the most 
best way to lose weight. Uh, maybe rein yourself in a bit, do some of the other work first, do a lot of the thought work stuff that we talk about on this podcast. And then when your head's in a better space, and you feel in general, more in control of your emotional eating, or binge eating, if that's you or those sorts of things, then consider adding in the fasting. And again, everybody's different. So you may struggle with emotional eating, and you may be able to fast through breakfast, eat lunch, and it doesn't really seem to trip you up. Uh, but I in my experience, I think sometimes it can. And so generally, my approach with people is when I first start working with them, if they're overeating at night, we generally go to more eating earlier in the day to get the appetite under control. And then we work on the thoughts and then we can start reintroducing the fasting. That's my opinion and experience. And it does differ a little bit. You'll hear in the conversation with uh, Megan, it does differ a little bit from what they do in their clinic. Uh, but they also do have extra supports um, for people who are struggling with those sorts of issues. Um, and I think really what it comes down to in all of this, when you're working on trying to find a lifelong solution for your weight issue or for your emotional eating, is really figuring out what actually works for you and what feels good for you and what is sustainable, something that you can keep going for the long term. That's the most important part. Now, the other important piece, if you're listening to this episode and you're on any medications like your diabetic medications, uh, high blood pressure medications, things like that, if you were to suddenly start fasting, it could significantly change your body's response to those medications. So remember, this podcast interview is for educational purposes only. It is not to take the place of medical advice. And if you are considering doing uh, something like fasting or adding things in, you need to talk to your own doctor and make sure that you do it safely so that you don't have any issues related to the medications or your underlying health issues. All right, without further ado, let's get to the interview. All right, Megan, welcome to the podcast. Thank you so much for joining me. Oh, thanks for having me on, Siobhan. I'm super excited to talk fasting with you because I know it's a really popular topic and you guys in your clinic are one of the most well-known um, sources of information for this. Uh, can you just start by giving us a bit of your background and how you came to being kind of an uh, expert in fasting? Yeah, so my clinical career and my personal health journey sort of hit came to uh head head to head in my mid-20s um my whole life uh up until the point i was 25 i was skinny fat i didn't know it uh, i was classified as underweight but had fatty liver disease and pcos my doctors were confused because i was <laughs> underweight and had diseases of obesity but i was clearly obese even though i weighed very little um, dietary habits, lifestyle caught up with me in my mid-20s, uh, radically tried to follow all of the proper guidelines, uh, get a personal trainer, work with a fancy dietitian in the city, um, follow the, uh, the food guide to a T, and then I rapidly gained, uh, gained about 100 pounds and got diagnosed with type 2 diabetes. 
parallel to that, I started working in nephrology uh, at the age of 15, doing research, um, really liked nephrology. Uh, saw that we went from having a few patients to a whole lot of patients. It felt like kidney mm -hmm. disease was becoming an epidemic of sorts and decided that, you know, I was very interested about preventative medicine. We were, why from the time I was 15 to I was 20, you know, our patient load like quadrupled overnight, it felt like. Um, so that's where my career ended up taking me. I, I fell in love with a lot of my dialysis patients. I, and the patients, when you're in nephrology, you see people all the time. Mm -hmm. um, Good <laughs> yeah, so I wanted to help them uh, and do what I could to stop this kidney disease epidemic. So I got into preventative medicine um, as a researcher. And uh, then it sort of was a realization that it wasn't necessarily a boom in like kidney disease. It was a boom in diabetic kidney disease. Hmm. And that in a preventative standpoint, unless you could prevent the diabetes, um, you could do diddly squat, you know, for the kidney function. Uh, so my job became really depressing and, um, that was actually inspiring for me to get my health together. 25, I was still skinny fat. And I said, okay, you've got these diseases and you've got metabolic syndrome. Like you have PCOS, you have fatty liver disease. Um, in hindsight, I fasted a lot in my life up until that point. But when I ate, I ate McDonald's, I ate Domino's, I ate you know, a bag of pretzels for a meal. Um, so my diet was terrible. And I said, okay, you need to eat X number of times a day, you know, six to seven times a day to stabilize your blood sugars and eat all this fruit and all this other nonsense. And then I went from fat, fat to, or skinny fat to fat, fat and became diabetic and did exactly the opposite of what I was intending to do. So that's where my personal life and my career hit had had to had head on head so um mm -hmm. parallel to that you know my colleague jason he jason fong he's a, a nephrologist uh based in scarborough and he was getting really frustrated too like where the heck are all these diabetic kidney disease patients coming from like this huge boom in diabetic nephropathy and i can't do anything for these patients if their diabetes is out of control and why is diabetes such a huge epidemic now like why wasn't a massive epidemic in, you know throughout human history like why is it just something now that's and he started to notice a lot of the diabetics like people weren't just developing diabetes at 80 and 70 anymore they're developing at 20 30 40 and it was able to sort of you know, manifest longer and cause more health issues. Um, and he sort of got into the low carb research, what led him into fasting, because he thought, you know, okay, changing what you eat only solves half the problem. It doesn't add any more insulin to your system. But how do you break the cycle of hyperinsulinemia, causing insulin resistance, causing hyperinsulinemia? And just not like reducing the amount of insulin you add to the system doesn't help break that cycle what actually breaks the cycle of insulin resistance and that's how he got into doing research on fasting there's actually a friend of his at dinner talking about fasting for spiritual reasons and there's the observed health benefits that got him really interested in it um jason goes to goes to church regularly with his family lent used to be it's catholic lent used to be 40 days of fasting now it's 40 days without beer or chocolate or potato chips um, so what happened in this transition and, um, you know, for me, I was at that point trying to do low carb and failing miserably, petrified of eating dietary fat, uh, because of my family history of heart disease, like 
most of my family dropped dead in their 30s or 40s. I lost an uncle at 36, grandfather at 41 um, from heart attack. So it's uh, petrified. So I was just struggling all over the place um, with that. And I started fasting. And for six months, I fasted consistently three times a week. I made a pack with myself. And then, um, and then I, I worked on my diet. And my diet's been a, an evolution. But within six months, I eradicated all of this disease. Uh, my progress was really inspiring to our colleagues who initially thought Jason was crazy for wanting to fast patients. And they said we couldn't do it in the clinic. But they saw me come back to life. We started with a pilot group of diabetics. They were all off insulin in four weeks. They were off all their oral um, antihyperglycemics in six months. Um, still to date, a decade later, they're still off of it. Um, so we started out in our clinic. Jason wrote a book called The Obesity Code, which has gained a lot of attention internationally, um, sort of put us on the map as being experts in the area of fasting. We got it to invited to speak at a lot of medical conferences and people from all over the world started reaching out to us. So we ended up developing an online fasting educational program along with some fasting coaching for people who need some more support and guidance. Mm-hmm. So can you, because fasting is controversial, right? Like, especially for people who it's a new concept for. Um, and like you said, w- most of us were raised with the like eat more meals to keep your metabolism up. I'm using air quotes so you can't see them yeah. on the podcast. <laughs> keep your metabolism up and, um, you know, burn more fuel and lose weight by eating more and never getting hungry and stuff. So, can you speak a little bit about where we're at with evidence for fasting? So um, there's a lot coming out now. I actually, in August, did an updated sort of uh, reference list for my own team. And I was just really sort of amazed when I went back to it and realized, you know, I was at 17 pages of what I consider to be really decent references on fasting because years ago, there was just a whole bunch of old stuff. Um, But I'd say the one greatest Thing in ter- especially in terms of weight loss, the greatest study that's come out was in 2016. And I think this is sort of where we've seen a big tide and a lot of focus, 2016 leading into 2019. And this was a randomized control trial comparing alternate daily fasting to traditional caloric diets over the course of 32 weeks. Uh, the alternate daily fasting group consumed zero calories, just water on their fasting days, and then they ate their regular diet regardless of what it was um, and on their eating days. And the calorie restriction group decreased their caloric intake by 400 calories every day. Um, so I think this trial was uh, so monumental for fasting because it showed that fasting, not only did we see more total body fat loss, we saw more trunk fat loss, and mm-hmm. we saw a greater increase in lean mass. Um, the increase in lean mass was like fivefold that, you know, of the, the alternate daily fat or the caloric restriction group. And then in terms of, uh, the metabolic rate, the resting metabolic rate, uh, there was no clinically significant reduction in resting metabolic rate of the alternate daily fasting group, but we saw a clinically significant reduction in resting metabolic rate in the calorie restriction group. So this is a really great study where I finally had a paper 
based on people, you know, from this day and this age in North America um, that said, no, your muscles aren't wasting. Your metabolic rate is not like going down. Um, it, not only are you fasting benefiting your lean mass, it's benefiting your resting metabolic rate. And I think that that paper was one that really sort of, you know, made people open their eyes a lot more in their medical community towards fasting potentially being a superior alternative or at least an alternative to people who don't want to follow calorie restriction diets or calorie restriction hadn't been working for them. And recently, earlier this year, there is a, a near identical study model um, that was published that validated the results too. So just a, a complete replica. So there's been some really great RCTs, mostly not, there's, there's a void for um, type two diabetes remission or reversal, depending on um, how you, what phrase you like to use. Um, but there's been a lot of really great data that's come out that's shown the superiority of alternate daily fasting versus traditional calorie restriction diets. I think that's you know really helped gain a lot of support for our fasting movement. And you know that's the results of that study are so interesting because they totally fly in the face of the conventional thoughts mm -hmm. that you know if you're not eating enough your metabolism goes down and you can't lose weight, you go into the starvation mode and that you know if you don't have enough protein uh, you're losing your um, muscle mass, right? And so it's interesting um, to, you know, to, to have data that just shows the exact opposite happens. What's the theory on why the muscle mass and things improve with fasting? Is it all to do with insulin or are there other theories? This is the, the whole fasting and feeding cycle of, of it. That's how we explain it to the people that we work with or when we speak at conferences. You know, when you do fast for periods of time, like 24, 36, 42, 48 hours, like you are going to see some protein being broken down for gluconeogenesis. Uh, but that doesn't mean that that protein actually comes from muscle mass. So you do see some protein being broken down, but when you're fasting for these durations of time, you know, your body's producing counter-regulatory hormones, your sympathetic nervous system's activated. So you see a rise in the human growth hormone production. Now you're not necessarily growing when you're fasting, but when you end up uh, ending your fast by re-entering the feeding cycle, you've got high levels of human growth hormone, you are eating, so you have plentiful amino acids, and you've got insulin secretion. So you sort of have the perfect storm for you know, preserving lean mass, rebuilding lean mass. I work with a lot of professional athletes nowadays, whether they're trying to rehab a shoulder injury, or they're trying to uh, treat a deeper medical condition like colitis. And these athletes are mostly men. They're about 7% body fat on average. Um, and for to experience fasting in a therapeutic range that they need to to help heal these conditions, you know, we see the best results doing 36 hours a couple times a week, um, or even longer fasts like three days or five days. Um, and these guys, they want to heal quickly so they can get back to performing. So it's not like we can do shorter fasts for a longer period of time. So we need to do longer fasts so they can get back to their livelihood. 
and we like they don't we don't see a reduction in their body fat upon follow-up DEXA scans and we actually see an increase in their lean mass and we just talk about talk to them about adequately refeeding with proper protein sources not you know going to a fast food place and just loading up on you know fattening junk food and we actually see their lean mass go up and these guys that are fasting for five days with just water uh it's it's pretty remarkable that's interesting that they don't drop any body fat whereas somebody who has body fat to lose does drop measurable body fat right with these particular guys, like when they're under 10% body fat, which most mm-hmm. of them are, unless they're uh, certain sports, baseball players tend to have a little bit more that I've worked with. Um, we really have them for a week leading up to like, a, say a five day fast, um, really take on extra, you know, kind of dietary fat. Yeah. Pardon? Yeah. Oh, I said like front load. Yeah. Front load with dietary fat, just so they have some reserves during the fast. Yeah. So that brings up an interesting topic that I often get asked is if you're using fasting and you also like to participate in sports like running or other athletic stuff, can you be physically active on the fasting days or do you have to modify anything? No, I mean, I've had guys, uh, George St. Pierre is someone who's worked worked with us. He's a UFC heavyweight champion or middleweight heavyweight champion. He's a really famous guy to all of the other people in my life. I didn't follow the UFC that closely. But this guy's trained in Thailand in extreme heat, you know, for during a five-day fast. Um, I myself actually converted all of the trainers at my gym to believing in fasting because I would always have the best weightlifting sessions somewhere between like 96 to 120 hours into a fast. So they actually were so impressed. They invited me to come in and do uh, talk to them to teach them more about it because they became interested and they all thought I was just this petrifying person to walk into the gym. I thought I was going to injure myself. And that if I talked to, they asked me not to talk about fasting to anybody else in the gym because they didn't want me to try to get their clients to start fasting. Um, so a big shift uh, with people and fitness. Um, you know, if you're following a low carbohydrate diet and you're staying adequately hydrated on your fast, you shouldn't notice a difference. The people that are most at risk are the ones that don't follow a low carb approach Mm -hmm. tend to uh, eat more carbs, have more glycogen. Then when they start fasting, seeing more significant drops in insulin, burning through more glycogen and releasing more water uh, and risking themselves becoming dehydrated. Yeah. Yeah. So like when, um, when someone really carbs up, um, I say, you know, don't, don't try to do something terribly strenuous the next day. Um, it's always, if you carb up, a good strategy is, you know, hydrate and move, but like, don't go and try to deadlift the most weight that you ever have. Um, go for walks, clean out your closet, do some gardening, you know, stay moderately active, but don't go crazy. For just a typical low carber um, who wants to maintain regular activity when they fast, you know, we found that sodium to be pretty critical, uh, mm-hmm. making sure the patient was well hydrated. You know, uh, these people are metabolic patients. Uh, they have uh, hyperinsulinemia. Their insulins are gonna their insulin's gonna come down when they fast. In some cases, it's got a long way to come down. So we see that electrolyte depletion just tends to be the biggest issue. So we encourage people about 60 minutes before they intend on doing a strenuous activity. Um, 
to take things like bone broth or like sugar-free pickle juice or just salty water or simply putting salt on the tongue and then drinking some water to chase it down uh, and then repeating that uh, shortly after they wrap up their workout and a lot of people that we've worked with that say you know we we go to the gym and we're so hungry afterwards like we we break down and we eat and I'll get them to have broth or some form of sodium, you know, before their workout. And then they say that they're not hungry afterwards. And that's because they're burning through, they're already depleted or have lower levels of sodium and they work out and they really deplete their systems and their hunger just seems to be enhanced after their workout because their body is really trying to replenish its electrolytes so just making sure that there's adequate hydration um, around times of exercise is really important okay and that's good um like your tips of sources for salt because often people or I definitely have lots of people who aren't fans of drinking broth. So the, you know, the idea that you can just take like some Himalayan sea salt, put it on your tongue, drink some water and uh, get it that way. So let's kind of back up slightly and just the benefits of fasting. So you talked about, you know, you can, evidence says you can lose weight while maintaining your lean muscle mass and not necessarily dropping your basal metabolic rate. Uh, you've talked briefly about diabetes, but what are the other benefits of fasting? Yes. Um, so we published a case series on uh, in the British Medical Journal, BMJ Cases, um, highlighting some of our type 2 diabetic patients who've been able to come off of insulin, all of them within a month, and have been able to sustain normal blood sugar levels without any diabetic medications for several years now. Mm-hmm. Um, so we're, we're seeing this like myself. I, I've had a hemoglobin A1C of 4.5 to 4.7 for uh, the best part of a decade now so we're seeing this full reversal of type 2 diabetes uh, and we're seeing people even myself if I went out tonight and ate a piece of cake um, you know it, seeing my blood sugar levels two hours postprandial you know being four millimoles you know per liter well within the normal range um, so we're seeing these people not just myself but our patients you know when pizza does happen, when cake does happen in their diet, that they're actually exhibiting a normal blood glucose response. So that's, that's the really improvement inspiring. of the insulin resistance, like the impact that yes. fasting is having on that. Yes. Um, we've yeah. also seen a fatty liver disease totally, totally like go away within about six months worth of consistent fasting with patients is really quite remarkable. Um, uh, All of the gastroenterologists at our hospital thought we were nuts. uh, And then they couldn't dispute the evidence and their patients they had been seeing for a decade with fatty liver disease and Mm -hmm. just watched it get worse or maintain. All of a sudden it just is completely gone. It's quite amazing. Lots of improvements and symptoms associated with PCOS. I had one young girl, 22 years old, hadn't had a period in two and a half years, ate like garbage, worked at a fast food joint, got the feeling that she was a life of the party everywhere she went on the weekend. Um, so I met with her and her mom, and uh, her mom says she won't change her diet. And she told me she wouldn't change her diet. 
but she agreed that it was just easier not to eat than to, well, she was on campus and at work to find better food options. So she started doing um, three days of fasting a week, Monday, Wednesday, Friday. And uh, she started in um, December 2018. By March, she had her first menstrual period. And every month since March now, so it's, um, you know, we're almost at a year time. Mm -hmm. She has had a period every 20, 27 to 29 days with wow. no birth control, no bioidentical hormones or synthetic, like nothing. Um, and her diet is, <laughs> is a work in progress. Um, <laughs> but <laughs> I got her off beer and on vodka, like we're going, <laughs> so um, it's a work in progress, but that's pretty impressive as well. So those mm -hmm. are some of the biggest things. You've had a lot of patients come off of antidepressants, a lot of patients off of ADHD medication as well. Uh, some of our patients have noticed improvements in controlling their symptoms associated with illnesses like schizophrenia and bipolar disorder. Hmm. So let's talk about just kind of the basics. So if somebody is listening to this and they haven't tried fasting, um, what do you guys recommend as like the first sort of starting, like when somebody's first trying fasting, what sort of time frame do you, does your clinic usually recommend? And then what other things do people need to be aware of when they're first starting fasting? So with most, the, most people, we try to encourage them to do a 24 hour fast, which means you would say fast from dinner tonight till dinner tomorrow night. So the, tomorrow, it's not like you're fasting all day, you're still having dinner, it's a 24 hour window. Um, so you're not forgoing the entire day of eating. So we'll usually tr try to test the water with the person um, doing that first. Uh, geographically in Toronto, um, I, myself, I didn't grow up fasting, um, but my best friend was Hindu and did. Mm -hmm. uh, fasting is not a foreign concept in this diverse city. Um, so we have had very little issues with it. A third of our patient population participates in Ramadan every year. Right. Um, so fasting is a more easier concept where I understand in other areas where you grew up like me, but not with the exposure to fasting that I did, you'd be more reserved about fasting. So when I do work with someone remotely online, um, who's, you know, fasting is just too much of a foreign concept for them right now, but they want to try it because they've, you know, seen some good results or their doctors recommended it, or they themselves are a doctor. But that whole paradox shift for them or paradigm shift is really complicated for them. We'll just go back to the basics of having three meals a day with no snacks and not snacking after dinner. And that for some people is a monumental struggle. But once that becomes easier, then it's okay. What like, do you feel like you could give up breakfast or do you feel like you could give up dinner? Most people forgo breakfast because the morning times are very hectic and their blood sugar levels are, they're a little bit more in tune with their body and notice that they're elevated in the morning because of the dawn effect. Mm -hmm. So they'll forgo breakfast and then we get into a 16 hour fast and we'll encourage people to do that as many days of the week as they can, even if it ends up being several days. And then from there, we'll go from 16 to 24. We always liken fasting to be like a muscle. It gets mm -hmm. stronger with consistent practice. At the start, three meals a day with a 14 hour fast might feel impossible, 
But if you do it consistently, it's not going to be difficult. Just like that, you know, 15 pound dumbbell at the gym, I feel like a lot of weight to do a tricep or a bicep curl with at the start, your first day in the gym, but six weeks down the road, it's going to be too easy for you. And you're not going to benefit from doing that. You're going to have to increase your weight to 20. So it's the same thing with fasting. So I'll test the water with people and try to encourage 24, um, but then just three meals a day and, and a slow and gradual approach is good too. Um, the, there are side effects of fasting. Most of them are the, identical to the keto flu because uh, it's the same thing. Your body's trying to go from sugar burning to fat burning. Um, so headaches, dizziness, lethargy, perhaps nausea a little bit. We always encourage our patients to stop fasting if they experience nausea and eat a meal and try to fast then again the next day or a couple of days later. Um, sleep disturbances can sometimes be a problem if you try to do too much fasting too soon uh, because of high noradrenaline levels when you're fasting. Um, the more consistent you are with the fasting, the less of an issue sleep disturbances are. Usually it's only a couple of weeks. Uh, sometimes we see uh, gout flare-ups when people are new to fasting, um, and we might see reflux act up. So if a patient does come into the clinic and they have a history of gout or a history of uh, reflux, then we'll start them out just three meals and two meals, one meal, and then get into more of the aggressive therapeutic intermittent fasting if we need to at that point, just to help let their body acclimate to being in a fat burning state in the fasting state more slowly just to lessen the side effects or potential side effects of fasting. And not everybody who has a history of gout or history of reflux sees a flare up when they first start fasting, sort of all over the place, you know, how much water maybe they're losing when they're fasting, the, uh, the, how much salt they're losing, especially in terms of gout. Uh, so we don't always see it. So we usually just take a more modest uh, and conservative approach with those patients. Mm -hmm. And medications, because um, obviously like if you're on a diabetic medication that lowers blood sugar through insulin production, and you stop eating, those ones probably need to be modified if you're fasting. Yes, absolutely. It will just it will depend on how well your blood sugar levels are controlled on that current medication mm -hmm. and what your fasting regimen is. If I mean if you're very if your blood sugar levels are very high, like 30 or 360 um, uh, then um, and then we're not probably gonna adjust them too much at the start because they could still fall quite substantially before you really see a massive bottom out on the blood sugar levels and them getting into a danger zone. Mm -hmm. um, but if they're more of a well-controlled diabetic, they're taking insulin, the blood sugar levels are always very stable around five or 90, then you know you, you wanna make an adjustment to it to prevent any issues with hypoglycemia and how much you adjust it will just depend on their fasting duration and, uh, and compliance. Patients that are on insulin and sulfonylureas, we do see quite regularly in follow-up um, weekly. Uh, mm -hmm. And they're also given um, insulin dosages sort of on a sliding scale, depending on what their readings are when they leave their consultation uh, or their follow-up appointment, if they're going to increase their fasting regimen. Um, usually people that are on other oral antihyperglycemics, aside from um, uh, 
sorry, sulfonylureas. Uh, we just sort of maintain their medications and see, you know, see if they're having any negative side effects, taking metformin on an empty stomach, uh, and just sort of see how the patient responds before making any adjustment to those. And is that your approach for things like antihypertensives and stuff too, is kind of see what happens when they're fasting and adjusted? Yeah, um, we, we do. Uh, we find that uh, things... Um, Diuretics, we often have to reduce, especially if they're on a um, very high dose of diuretic for reasons that maybe don't make sense sometimes, um, mm -hmm. or it's been a very long time since that dosage was looked at after an incident, um, that might be modified up front. But usually we just wait and see if the patient reports any symptoms of hypotension or orthostatic hypotension. Nice. Um, so the, you've talked a few times about like therapeutic range of fasting. In your definition, how long does the fasting have to be to start getting into what you consider a therapeutic range? So if you follow low-carb or ketogenic diet, um, usually 24 is the minimum of what we like to see. Um, if the diet is a work in progress, um, or it's not ideal for various reasons. Um, and then sort of 36 hours is the minimal that we like to see. There's been some data that's come out on fasting and MS um, in the last couple of years, showed that the greatest benefits for MS uh, and fasting was sort of like a five-day water fast, um, and shorter fast didn't necessarily show, show the same benefits in the same time frame that was looked at in that study. So, um, so it sort of, again, depends on the condition. Mm -hmm. For most people, um, most people uh, for weight loss, uh, particularly if, if uh, for weight loss, particularly if it's like over 20 or 30 pounds, more so than that, the freshman 15 that they might be looking to lose that's lingered mm -hmm. around for too long, or people with metabolic conditions like fatty liver, PCOS, type 2 diabetes, we usually try to work everybody up to doing a 36 or a 42-hour fast. A 36-hour fast is just skipping a whole day of eating, and the next day on their eating days, eating breakfast, lunch, and dinner. But a lot of the patients that we've seen, um, they just don't feel that hunger in the morning anymore and don't want to eat if they're not hungry. So they'll skip breakfast and go to lunch, and that will extend it to about a 40 or 42-hour fast. So when we first started seeing patients, we actually had them sign contracts saying they went fast longer than 36 hours. And a lot of them said, but we can't stop. Stop forcing us to eat breakfast in the morning, especially when our blood sugar levels are all so high. Let us burn through that first and then break our fast at lunchtime. So our patients sort of forced us into extending our minimum fast uh, for, the, for uh, type 2 diabetes of 36 hours in the 42-hour range. Hmm. And then what's the longest that you guys use? Uh, so therapeutically, the longest that we've asked the patient to fast for was 21 days. Um, mm -hmm. And we assessed it every seven days. And of course, the patient uh, was encouraged to stop anytime she felt unwell for any reason. Um, but she completed a 21-day fast. Um, by day, around day 14 um, was her second visit. We completely cut off her insulin at that 
point, Jason discontinued it. Uh, she was taking 110 units to start. Um, that was about several years ago now. She's still off of her insulin so uh, that was powerful we did have a lady do a 30 or sorry 61 day fast where she drank broth uh once a day once or twice a day on the weekends but just drank water and salt throughout the weekdays Hmm. and so that that brings up like an interesting because as you know my interest is sort of in the emotional eating type side of stuff and for somebody who's had issues with food and and kind of leaning on food as a coping mechanism how do you help them cope with suddenly, like it's even, it's hard for a lot of the people I work with to take the carbs away if they're used to that being their coping mechanism. How do you help people through that just totally removing food for like somebody like that, that's doing a longer, like just not eating fast? Well, so when we have patients that we ask to do seven or 14 or 21 days of fasting, there's usually some major medical concern going on. Um, and something that's like they're hanging off the cliff with just one finger and they're about to fall off of the cliff. The first woman we ever did a seven day fast for broke down and said her life was so miserable on insulin. She was gaining 10 pounds a month. She couldn't walk anymore. Her knees were too bad. She was always out of breath that, you know, if, if this wasn't going to help her, she was just going to commit suicide. Hmm. Um, so there's high motivation to see results because we we will really recommend these longer fasts off the bat when people tend to present dire, dire needs. Uh, and they usually see the results within a day or two. And hmm. that result, um, I think, is just so motivating. Like for a person who's been on insulin, like over 100 units of insulin for 30 years, to suddenly after a week, you know, see their insulin go down from over 100 units to maybe 10 units or none at all, that is just so motivating for a lot of these people. It surpasses their needs for everything else. Um, we do struggle with uh, some individuals like that that woman who's got 30 pounds to lose in the border diabetic range, um, who doesn't have, you know, sort of the, as Jason calls it, the, yeah, the fear of God, Jason will say. Um, and it, so that's where we tend to take more of a, a gradual approach to it. Um, we do have a, a behavioral psychologist on our team. Um, and we have behavioral groups that people join and she's, uses various strategies to help them go go through it and you know make sustainable changes shorten the learning curve um so these people aren't you know ending up developing insulin dependent diabetes um before they actually start to make changes so we'll have them work with her and she'll she'll coach them through it it's still tough even at that stage without, without the intense motivation. I actually had a group of young guys once um, and I could have bashed all of their heads together. Um, I was so furious because they, they didn't realize that they, when you have stage three kidney disease, your life's pretty cool, right? Like you're not feeling the impacts of it very much. And these guys were in their 20s at the time. I was in my 20s. And one day they showed up for their appointment. I used to see patients in groups for motivation. Mm -hmm. And I said, drop your bags. We're going on a field trip. And I took them to the dialysis unit. And I had them speak to a 27-year-old on dialysis who could no longer work or have romantic periods with his partner um, or provide for his family or have children. Like it was just... Um, 
sobering. So, so, <laughs> so I've gone to extreme measures, but it's, it's tough. A big thing that we did in clinic was to see people in groups and encourage group follow-up so they could see that this is possible or they could get motivated. Or even my father, who's in relatively good health but needed to lose some weight, who lacked motivation, wanted to come back to the group to show them that he had been successful between appointments. So mm -hmm. we found the group setting to be quite, quite beneficial for us as well. So just um, to kind of go back to some of the just basics, one question that comes up tons because on the internet there's so many different opinions about how you fast is the whole do you eat fat while fasting i.e do you put cream in your coffee do you do a bulletproof coffee or is it just like what you're talking about i think is mainly just water and electrolyte fasts yeah we encourage the people who are trying to fast for weight loss and metabolic reasons water black tea um, or herbal teas without anything in it, black coffee, broth or, uh, or pickle juice as much as they need it. Um, we consider the fats that you add to your, say your tea or coffee um, to be training wheels. So as you're easing mm -hmm. into fasting, sure, use them. Um, it's, it's fine to have training wheels on a tricycle when you're two years old. When you're 12 years old in grade six, grade seven, you're no longer cool. If you're showing up to school on a tricycle, you don't really need them at that point if you practice consistently. So we'll encourage our patients to drop them down the road. You know, something like a bulletproof coffee, that's quite a lot of fat in the bulletproof mm -hmm. coffee. So it takes a few hours to, to, it fuels you for a few hours. So that's a few hours of your fast that you're fueling off of the fat in your coffee rather than your own body fat. So if your goal is to burn body fat, well, you're fasting for all this time, but you're not really burning body fat. So usually with patients, you know, if they need their bulletproof coffee to transition or some cream or a shot of MCT oil here or there, sure, you're transitioning to a drastically different lifestyle. So there's got to be some in-between steps. But once you don't need them anymore, it's time to try to wean, wean off of them or just cut them out cold turkey, depending on your personality type. A lot of people like it. They like their coffee with cream. They like that MCT oil 30 minutes later makes them feel like they could climb Mount Everest. Um, they like that feeling. But finally, you know, the results start to slow down. And they're like, what are we doing wrong? And it's, it's now time to put the training wheels back on the shelf and, uh, and ride this without them. And then as soon as they do the results, they start going back to seeing consistent weight loss and reduction in, in their markers that, like inflammation, blood sugar, those things that they're looking to see come down. Mm -hmm. Okay. And then um, the other question I had for you guys is, um, like I said, my population that I deal with has a lot of binge eating and a lot of emotional eating and also people who previously have had food addictions, not food addictions, sorry, that too, but uh, eating disorders at a younger point in their life and now have obesity. Um, and so how do you guys as a clinic approach uh, those where there's that kind of layer of um, slightly disordered relationship with the food in that so that the fasting doesn't then trigger either over restriction, like in the setting of somebody who's previously had anorexia, or uh, binging and things like that in somebody with uh, binge eating disorder? Yeah, we've had even instances where people grew up in such extreme poverty 
where food was so scarce, then when we start fasting them and they end their fast, like um, they totally binge afterwards. Mm-hmm. Um, so usually if there's any indication of any sort of eating disorder or any sort of negative relationship with food, even people that um, were bullied, we'll ask them about that by kids at school when they were younger, by their father when they're growing up, by a a mean spouse or by their kids that might have some emotional issue um, with uh, with their food. Um, We'll really start them off slowly. We don't want to force them into anything and trying to take it to the the extreme. Um, So we'll go to 14-hour fast, and we'll try to do the bare minimum of fasting that we need to see the effect or the result or to try to achieve the result that we're looking for. Mm-hmm. So sometimes you can take a person off of insulin and lose adequate weight just doing a 16-hour fast. Um, so we'll start off slowly and we'll just see how their body responds and just take a really gradual approach. Sometimes if a person, um, in particularly it's too emotionally difficult, you know, we'll really just focus on time restricted eating protocols and really just try to tidy up their diet, you know, experiment with a ketogenic diet, real foods, you know, and making sure that they're getting a, a nutrient dense diet mm-hmm. when they're doing so to try to help achieve those results as well. Um, I'll tell you, we haven't had too many, too many issues um, with it, with doing that slow approach. Uh, we did unfortunately learn the hard hard way. I had uh, a gentleman who grew up in extreme poverty, poverty in Vietnam and uh, immigrated to Canada, 70 years old, um, and just would totally binge eat everything after a fast. Um, so we, we learned that we needed to look at the patient's uh, relationship with food in greater detail in the consultation. And if people had any sort of negative emotional relationship with food, then we had to start off on a slower approach. Mm-hmm. And I find in those patients, just because fasting so widely out there in the, on the internet and stuff, sometimes I have to be reining people back a little bit. You know, like often those uh, the patients with those disordered thoughts around food want to jump into the really black and white and like kind of the most restrictive version to see the results. And yet if you don't clean up, like you said, the diet, clean up your thoughts and kind of get in the right space, then it just sort of perpetuates the underlying issue. Yeah. All right. Any last minute tips or thoughts that we haven't covered? No, um, you don't, uh, Check with your doctor, you know, always make sure you don't, you're not a salt sensitive individual. If you're not, you know, about 80% of the population is not. Don't be afraid to take salt preventatively on your fasting days. A lot of people, I think one of the biggest mistakes I see is they wait till they feel not great Mm. and then they take some salt, but then it takes an hour or two for them to start to feel better. So then that ends up being about like, two or three hours of the day where they don't feel well. So if you're new to fasting or giving it a shot, you're not salt sensitive, you check with your doctor, if you're not a doctor, and um, then wake up in the morning, have a cup of broth, have some pickle juice, have some salty water, or put a pinch of salt on your tongue, and then maybe just set an alarm on your phone at noon, at four o'clock, just to do so again. 
Um, and then that way you really sort of prevent a lot of the unwanted side effects that you might get from fasting. So I think that's really important to be prophylactic with it rather than try to use it as a remedy after the fact. So that's something I really try to drive home with a lot of the people we work with. Um, another thing is too that the most common side effect of fasting is insomnia. Uh, again, if you're consistent with your fast um, fasting schedule, the insomnia goes away after a couple of weeks. It's not, not a big long-term deal, but even a couple of weeks of poor sleep can really be problematic for some people. I mean, I give presentations and talks and lectures and see patients that I have to be focused on. Um, so I can't really afford a couple of weeks of my life to go down uh, a sleepy path way. Mm. Um, so what is a really great uh, preventative measure for controlling that is Epsom salts. They're far superior than magnesium supplementation. Um, so we encourage people, you know, if you're doing a fast and a longer fast, you know, that evening, take an Epsom salt bath. If you can't get into the bathtub easily or you don't own a bath uh, or don't have a bathtub, um, just a bucket or a bowl with some Epsom salts and water and just soak your feet in them while you watch uh, a sitcom, the big game, read a book, listen to a podcast. Um, and then that, that makes a dramatic, dramatic impact in, in um, your sleep quality when you're first new to fasting. Interesting. Excellent. So where can people find you? And so our website is uh, thefastingmethod.com and all of our social links are up there um, on Instagram and Twitter. I have a personal profile as well where I share where we're speaking and what I'm doing. And you can find me um, at the handle Megan J. Ramos. Nice. Well, thank you so much for joining me, Megan. I've really appreciated the chance to chat with you. Oh, thank you, Siobhan. It's been great to, great to talk fasting, uh, fasting with you as well. Thanks. All right. That was chock-a-block loaded with lots of information about fasting and different ways of applying it. I really appreciate Megan taking the time to being interviewed today. I found it really helpful and interesting to have the chance to sit down and chat with her. Uh, let me know what your questions or comments are. Send me an email at info at weightsolutionsforphysicians.ca. And if you are struggling with your own weight or feeling like you can't get your emotional eating or binge eating under control, then one-on-one -on -one coaching could be the solution that you're looking for. The one-on-one -on -one coaching is the most efficient and effective way to really dig down and figure out the reasons why those behaviors are there in the first place, which then makes actual behavior quite simple to change. Once you fix the root causes, the actual behavior becomes so much simpler. If you feel that you could benefit from this help, I would love to help you. Just head over to my website, weightsolutionsforphysicians.ca, click on the work with me tab and book a free introductory session. So the free introductory session gives you and I a chance to get online together and just talk about what you're struggling with and how I could best help you. All right. Thank you so much for listening and taking the time. Please share this episode if you found it helpful. Uh, we will talk to you later. Have a fantastic week.
And now for a quick disclaimer, this podcast contains general education information on weight loss for physicians. I'm not providing medical advice and listening to this podcast does not create a physician-patient relationship. This podcast does not replace a need for consultation with a licensed professional and no information should be relied upon unless you have obtained specific advice or treatment from myself or another physician. Please review the terms and conditions located at www.weightsolutionsforphysicians.ca before continuing.